Hello, and welcome to The Right Side of History, a show dedicated to exploring current events through a historical lens and busting left-wing myths about figures and events of America's past. My name is Jarrett Stepman, a contributor to The Daily Signal. And I'm Fred Lucas, White House correspondent for The Daily Signal. And this week we are discussing fake news, a topic that exploded in the wake of the 2016 election and has been a serious part of public debate ever since. We thought this debate afforded a good opportunity to talk about the history of journalism and fake news, as well as the modern debate of how to address it. Now, Fred, of course, uh, recently President Donald Trump had... His fake news awards, in which he uh, handed out a lot of uh, awards to different organizations and journalists. You uh, you actually wrote about this uh, this event, which right. I, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, it's not something we've seen a president do before. Can you kind of uh, talk about that a little yeah, bit? Well, uh, it, it, it turned out, in fact, that the RNC uh, ended up handing them out because it was a little bit of a controversy as to whether the White House should be involved. But but I I think the bottom line is that uh, CNN uh, got four out of the 11 awards, uh, awards, <laughs> dubious awards. Uh, the New York Times got a couple, and then, then ABC News and uh, Newsweek rounded out a few more. Uh, MSNBC actually got zero, so uh, they're probably very disappointed, thinking there's always <laughs> next year. But uh, I, I, uh, it's probably not a big surprise CNN got the the uh, the most. That's been the most confrontational network against Trump. Uh, what I would say, though, um, two two points about that. Uh, all is uh, one to the credit of the RNC or Trump, uh, who, whoever you want to give the credit to for picking these winners, winners uh, or losers. Uh, the uh, each one of these stories that they picked out. Um, were actually cases where the item was corrected. It was actually a incorrect story. It wasn't just a matter of uh, Trump not liking the reporting on him. Um, one, one, one being uh, from Paul Krugman. That, that was an actual opinion column, but which he said the markets will never recover after this election. Uh, and, and but on, on that same point, on that same point, uh, I guess you would also have to give some credit to these news organizations. They did correct their story and retract it a- afterwards. So. Um, so, in that sense, of I mean, as that far is as interesting. Goes. I mean, it does get to the, the heart of the definition <laughs> yeah. of right. what exactly constitutes fake news. Of right. course, the original story that broke in 2016 yeah. is that there were news outlets and publications that were intentionally fabricating stories and then putting out mm-hmm. them out into the public. And of course, you know, Trump in many ways has spun that around on a lot of, I would say, liberal media, and you know, changed it to well, any kind of fake story that's created or one that hasn't been sourced correctly or was based based on you know, incorrect facts uh, that aren't facts at all, that yeah. also constitutes fake news. And as you said, it, Trump went after what were mistaken stories, perhaps by media outlets that were in a, in a rush to break with a story that you know, may hurt the president or may mm-hmm. make a splash before other media outlets do. That there's certainly, There certainly has been a lot of this. And, and so I, I think that certainly right now, there's this ru- onrush uh, this this ongoing story of how exactly we deal with fake news. I mean, what do we do to address the fact that there are these fake stories out there, and the media is, you know, in kind of fear about this? And of course, organizations like Facebook and Twitter, social media, have tried to find ways 
to address this and try to say, well, we're going to weed out fake news, which of course always gets to the heart of what is fake news, who's controlling it, uh, you know, how exactly do we censor this? So I, I think that's it's become correct. a very and, and there was a poll actually. Uh, that came out the, uh, the the week of Trump putting giving out these fake news awards. A Gallup poll uh, done with the Knight Foundation, which is a journalism organization, uh, where the public uh, didn't really draw a big distinction between getting facts wrong or rushing a story before you know all the facts and just making something up out of whole cloth. Yeah, I think that's that's sometimes the distinction between. There's a lot of major news outlets like the New York Times and Washington Post that are often quite objective in in, in their reporting, but sometimes they get something wildly wrong. And the question is, does that influence public opinion the same way that just, uh, you know, outright con artist would? Um, And And also, is bias or a heavily tilted news item uh, that doesn't look at the other side, is that also fake news? I mean, that's that's something that's kind of been thrown in as this term has exploded in the past year. (laughs) For sure. And so I think, in particular, I think a lot of other Western countries, in Europe in particular, have now decided to go after fake news through the law itself. That's that they've, they've decided that they are somehow going to weed out fake news. There's a, a recent law that just went on the books in, in Germany that would censor social media uh, sites and allow the government to, to tell them essentially to take down material that's considered hate speech or fake news or face a fine. Uh, French President Emmanuel Macron has actually tried to introduce uh, legislation that would also essentially censor fake news. And even more recently, the European Union has put out a commission looking at ways to address the fake news problem, which, you know, in the long run could end up with some level of, of government censorship. So certainly there are a lot of actions that are being taken by governments uh, to deal with this problem. But, you know, there certainly can be what you'd see as unintended consequences. I mean, they say that they are trying to protect democracy. Question ultimately boils down to... It would to, seem like quite the opposite. It would <laughs> seem like quite the opposite. And and uh, where at what point is there a violation of the individual right to free speech, which, of course, is the, a big problem in all this. So, you know, I, I think that it's worth noting because, of course, there's this allegation that you know, it's only conservative media in particular that has uh, fake news, and and certainly Google uh, had an, an app that analyzed only basically fact-checked conservative sources uh, for being fake news. But there have been a long list of what you say are fake news or bogus stories uh, done by a lot of what you consider mainstream or liberal uh, publications and mainstream media. And Fred, you you've had a, a, a long history of uh, you've been in Washington D.C. for a while. You've kind of tracked some of these stories and you you kind of discussed some of these with with me. And you know maybe give uh, the the listeners a rundown of some of these really egregious uh, stories of the last ten or fifteen years or so. Yeah, yeah uh, I mean g- going back, I uh, just. Uh, uh Back in 2003, actually, there was a really big one. Uh, this young 27-year-old named Jason Blair had this meteoric rise at the New York Times. Uh, no, no conservative outlet. Uh, he uh, he he had like several stories that, that kind of came under suspicion, but they were just errors and they had to be corrected. The the presumption early on was that they were you know factual errors or rookie mistakes. Uh, but but then real suspicions came when it uh, was evident that he was fabricating stories. And um, a lot of the 
it was a, a big drama at the time. Uh, time staffers opposed uh, how executive editor Hal Raines at, at the time had the star system and was promoting a guy like Jason Blair. Uh, and eventually a uh, committee within the Times uh, put together uh, these recommendations how to keep this from happening again. Uh, they uh, established the appointment of a public editor, which they had for just until last year. A public editor was somebody who would be sort of an internal watchdog of the paper, come on for uh, – they, they had several, actually. They've come on for a one-year contract, have complete autonomy to criticize the newspaper inside the pages of the newspaper. The Times last year decided they didn't like that. Uh, actually, at a time when they were saying truth matters more now than ever, uh, they got rid of their public editor, oddly enough. But um, uh, and, and and this scandal ended with uh, Hal Raines resigning in disgrace. Uh, another big scandal was Stephen Glass at the New Republic, which is a liberal opinion magazine. Uh, he did a fairly crazy hit piece on CPAC. Uh, back in the late 90s, and uh, there was like he was somewhat immortalized in a bad way in the movie Shattered Glass. Uh, just, where... just so the folks know, what sure. CPAC is an annual conservative right. conference yes. yeah. that Thank takes you. place in Washington D.C. annually. Just, just to, just to right. note that. Right. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, he's um, he of course lost his job there when he was found out. He was actually a Georgetown Law graduate, and to this day he can't get a law license because of all the fabrications that he did while he was a journalist. Going back some ways, uh, one of the worst was uh, Janet Cook. Uh, she wrote a. She actually won a Pulitzer Prize for a story titled Jimmy's World, and uh, it was about an eight-year-old heroin addict. And uh, her supervising editor was actually none other than Bob Woodward. And the executive editor of the Post at the time was none other than Ben Bradley, the both Watergate heroes. Uh, ben Bradley, uh, uh, in his book, recalls uh, telling Cook, uh, after investigating this, you're a liar just like Nixon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and unlike uh, the case with Walter Durante, uh, uh, the Post actually gave back their Pulitzer in, in this once it was proven false. Well, it's so. interesting you bring up Walter Durante for listeners who may not know this name. Yeah. Durante was actually a, a journalist, a mid-20th century journalist, who peddled one of, I guess you could say, one of the greatest fake news frauds of all time. He was a uh, Moscow bureau chief for the New York Times, and uh, he was uh, he was in Ukraine reporting on the Essentially, what was at the time a huge famine that was going on in Ukraine. Now, Durrani uh, published a series of stories saying that essentially there was no mass famine and starvation going on. That you know the, the Soviet Union's policies were sound. That it was a good regime, and this had a lot of impact on the American voters uh, who weren't really getting information otherwise. Even though there were some other media's uh, outlets that criticized Durrani, for the most part, people expected the New York Times to be straight with readers. Uh, years later, of course, it turned out that Durrani was making up things and, and telling uh, falsehoods that were being fed to him directly from uh, the Stalin's regime. So, you know, certainly one of the biggest fake news stories of the 20th century shows how a massive fraudulent story like that can really move people. I mean, especially in, early, in mid-20th century, there wasn't a whole lot of news outlets besides the New York Times, and these major publishers were so big that, oh, every American would pick up the New York Times and trust them. Yeah, so, and, and the New York Times was called the 
newspaper of record because they set the national agenda at the time. So, absolutely. And so, you know, certainly, uh, you know, especially as people report on fake news and you know who's guilty. Uh, even even what you would say is the biggest, most well-funded, most professionals. Even these publications can get, fall into egregiously wrong stories that affect public opinion. And and beyond publications, um, one of the things in, in fairly recent memory, and in, in, uh, in the last. Uh, a little over a decade ago, uh, 2004 election, you had Dan Rather in the heart of a presidential election, uh, lost his perch as a CBS News anchor uh, after memo gate. Uh, they they accused George W. Bush uh, of shirking his um, guard duty, na- national guard duty. Uh, Mary Mapes was actually the uh, producer, was more likely the culprit in this. She ended up writing a book. Uh, Truth and Duty, uh, giving a revisionist account of that. Uh, Robert Redford ended up making a movie of this where he played Dan Rather, and it was uh, very much a sort of trying to justify this, but it, it was an example of, if not fake news in the terms that they set out to, it was a story that was very much rushed, and it was a story that turned out to be wrong because they were relying on completely wrong information to be in the memos. And certainly something that could have had enormous impact on a presidential election. Right. I mean, something that dramatically influences the future of the country. Yeah, and and, and in some ways, it, it did the reverse of uh, the, the story was unraveled and was discredited so quickly that arguably it helped George W. Bush win re-election that year. Yeah, it's very interesting. So we actually have a co-worker here at the, the Daily Signal, Rob Bluey, who is the vice president of communications, who was one of the first to break this story, actually, back in, I want to say, 2004. Yeah. Um, Rob was one of the first people to, to break this story. Story and kind of bring it to public attention. It hit the the Drudge Report, and you know that's when the story finally took off. That Dan Rather's uh, reporting wasn't exactly wasn't exactly straight. So uh, we actually had a chance to sit down with with Rob and also our coworker Mike Gonzalez, who is a, a senior fellow at, at the Heritage Foundation, to talk about the Rather story and, and fake news. As I earlier mentioned, uh, one classic example of what turned out to be fake news, that was the memo gate issue, or also called the Rather Gate uh, matter, that brought down Dan Rather's career. He had been the anchor for nearly a quarter of a century at CBS Evening News. And um, here talking to the reporter, who, uh, who at the time he was a reporter, now the editor of the Daily Signal, and he covered that and broke Rathergate. Uh, and sim- similar to how Woodward and Bernstein brought down President <laughs> Richard Nixon, uh, I thought I would, uh, and did their memoir in All the President's Men, I thought I would ask Rob Louie to give us some, maybe a quick synopsis of all of his story. Well, thanks, Fred. <laughs> You're very generous in, in that. Uh, you know, it was interesting because Dan Rather broadcast this on uh, 60 Minutes 2, which was then aired on, on a Wednesday night. The, the show no longer exists. And it had a lot of buzz because everybody expected this to bring down and, and bring to a stop, uh, I think, the momentum that President Bush had in his reelection campaign. And 
um, almost immediately what you saw. This is this is before Twitter. This is before you know Facebook had had become popular outlets. Well, before Twitter existed, before Facebook had become popular, and you did have some sites though. You had conservative blogs uh, and, and message groups like Free Republic and Little Green Footballs, where almost immediately after the show aired on that evening, there was some chatter about whether or not these documents were were real or fake. Um, and of course, in a mainstream media environment at the time that was obsessed with amplifying Dan Rather's reports, suggesting that President Bush had, um, you know, these these documents. Um, revealed that President Bush was trying to get out of his service in the Texas Air National Guard. That was the prevailing story, even on the Drudge Report uh, that that next morning, that Thursday morning. So when I set foot into the newsroom at CNS News, my editor handed me the documents, which CBS News had posted on, on the website. So they made the documents available. And he said, Rob, do you notice anything about these documents that, that looks um, rather suspicious? And of course, CNS News is part of the Media Research Center, so they do this analysis on a daily basis. And the first thing, uh, being married to a graphic designer, uh, <laughs> uh, I said, yes, uh, it looks like the font of the uh, that was on the documents uh, in no way could have been produced in 19, the 1960s when these documents, or early 1970s when the documents were purported to have existed. The font was Times New Roman. It was the font that if you go open up Microsoft Word and you start typing, that was the font. And uh, and of course, we know, all know that typewriters type in, in not Times New Roman, but a, a, but a different type of uh, you know sans serif font. And so my immediate uh, d- decision was to, to get on the phone and talk call some people who were experts in fonts and typography. And I I found three of them rather quickly, sent them the documents, had them do their own analysis, quickly wrote up the story, and uh, within minutes, the story was on the Drudge Report, Fred. So, <laughs> yes, uh, you're correct that uh, I often do uh, get credit, but there were people who were raising questions, and I, I think this was a case of uh, being uh, fast and a little bit lucky. Well, yeah, I mean, I, but it sounds like people were raising questions, but you uh, did the legwork to in a journalistic way, document that, which is important. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it, and it was one of those things where it also was a met with it, the it was met with immediate skepticism. I remember mm-hmm. uh, sending um, uh, hearing from somebody who was at the Republican National Committee at the time, working on the president's reelection campaign, and he said, "You're you're wrong." Um, <laughs> uh, meaning, I was wrong. I, I I shouldn't get my hopes up that he thought that uh, that that there was no way that CBS would screw up this badly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so even people who were strong Bush loyalists, I think, were skeptical about some of the initial reporting about the documents being fake. And of course, Dan Rather went on the evening news that night and, and stood firm and said, yes, questions are being raised, but I stand by my story. I think he did it the following night. It wasn't until the weekend came and, and really more and more questions began to re- unravel about Mary Mapes and the whole story that uh, that he was reporting uh, that the issue really did take center stage. And as you said earlier, Dan Rather was forced out of his job. Um, he's obviously back in the news because of his uh, role on the Young Turks. But uh, but yeah, for a number of years, it really, I think, did damage Dan Rather's reputation. You know, what you're talking about, Rob, is, I mean, the power of alternative media. I mean, at the time, this was a big network that had run this story. A lot of people were willing to just go with it. 
there are other media outlets like uh, you know what you work for and other you know like things like Drudge that showed that you can you know kind of crack that nut. I mean, if it hadn't been for that, who knows how long the story would have stayed out there? Uh, obviously, had a huge amount of impact on a presidential race. I mean, now there are even more tools for people to get a message out there to report on things because we do have new media websites. We have things like the, the Daily Signal and other websites that you know sometimes counterdict the narratives that are coming out of the New York Times or CBS. So I think it definitely shows the impact that alternative media publications have had in the last uh, 10, 15 years. It, it certainly does, and I'd say that the one thing that's different uh, was different then and has changed today is, yes, there's been an explosion of growth in alternative media outlets, but, there, but even a Drudge Report at the time wouldn't link to a blog like Little Green Footballs or Free Republic because they were just not seen as credible enough sources. So it was important for outlets like CNS News to be following up on these things because you're right, Jared, if, um, if those outlets weren't doing it at the time, I, I, don't, I frankly don't know that, uh, that that anybody in the so-called mainstream media would have uh, raised these types of questions. Absolutely. So we're also here with, with Mike Gonzalez, uh, who's our colleague here at the, the Heritage Foundation, who actually worked at the, the Wall Street Journal for, for many years. And you had a great piece uh, with us recently called Don't Let Liberals End Opinion Diversity Under the Cover of Fake News. And I think you kind of laid out this idea that, of course, there's been some debate over what exactly constitutes fake news. Is it... Uh, botched news stories that people intentionally misleading audiences, or is it maybe just a diversity of opinions and viewpoints? Can you kind of talk to us about this story that you wrote? I think you had a very good point of view. Well, see, I, I think uh, Rob Louie's uh, uh, anecdote is a prime example of how good reporting drives out bad reporting in the marketplace of ideas. That we do not need government interference to stamp down on fake news, as many people are calling for now. I don't know if you saw uh, uh, it just uh, just recently this week. Diane Feinstein, Senator Diane Feinstein, a Democrat of California, and Adam Schiff, also a Democrat in the House from California, have called uh, for uh, Facebook, I think, uh, and Google to do a forensic study of uh, of, of, of of the uh, so-called bots, Russian bots that were pushing out. They, they uh, released the memo hashtag. It turned out that their own internal investigation showed that they were mostly American uh, uh, Twitter handles that were doing this, not Russian uh, bots. But even if they are, and, and I think it is despicable that the Kremlin would try to interfere in our democracy when it does, and it does. Uh, but just because they're doing that, we should not uh, overreact and call for government interference or government censorship, nor should the platforms such as Facebook and Twitter and Google and YouTube itself be policing uh, what is acceptable news or not acceptable news. I think, that, I think it's buyer beware now. <clears throat> I think, as I've said in my piece, we have diversity of opinion and diversity of news selection. Remember, it's not just opinion. It's the way the news is presented and also news selection. Mm. If you, you can watch Fox and MSNBC and the stories that they will select to highlight or even to report at all uh, tell you everything you need to know. If you watch MSNBC, uh, you will not hear a lot about the stock market rise. You will not hear a lot about the, 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 the rapid economic growth or any of the good news that the Trump administration has. You could say the same thing about Fox, that they will give short shrift to a lot of the bad stuff that comes out with them. They would not be critical enough of, of Trump tweets and so forth. So that is fine. It's okay to have, uh, it's okay to have outlets that, that are liberal. It's okay to have outlets that are conservatives. It's okay to have outlets that strive to play it down the middle. 
it's it's caveat emptor right now. It's buyer beware. We should all be aware of this. We should all news consumers should be aware of this. But the, let's not forget, as I said in my piece, and you have written a, a lot about this too, uh, uh, Jared. Uh, so you know a lot about it. And David Harsani of the Federalist yes. has, has written a lot about it. Uh, that uh, the, the the fake news meme was started uh, by liberals. It was started. Uh, I think they, 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 the person who is who gets the credit for this is a New York Times um, reporter whose name I forget. Actually, it's a New York Times media critic, right? Uh, Rudenberg, I think is his name. Yeah. Uh, and and it was started as a way to attack internet, as, as he called it, internet born. Uh, internet-born rise in new, as what you call, alternative media, and uh, what they want, what they what they have always wanted to do since they lost their monopoly on, on 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 news dissemination is to get back that monopoly. Don't forget, I'm old enough yes. to remember when uh, four very nice men, journalists Walter Cronkite, Harry Reasoner, uh, Jim Chancellor. Uh, uh, Robinson, what, they were the only uh, news anchors. They they they, uh, they they controlled the news, as it were. I mean, Walter Cronkite would actually sign off saying, "And that's the way it was today, April the fifth, whatever, nineteen sixty-five," and because that's that's the way it was according to Walter Cronkite. What they all had in common is that they were liberals. They were liberals. They they were uncontested. Uh, conservatives and and actually any American uh, of any stripe should be very zealous in keeping the new hard-worn media diversity and not let this drive against fake news. And I I deplore fake news. I deplore when when people try to to this information. But to begin with, is is a sin. You you shall not lie. Of course. (laughs) But but the way to drive it is not to drive out um, uh, the other side, as as, as, is eventually the way it would be used. Yeah, and of course, the ultimate goal is to find the truth. And if you have things like censorship and things like this, it makes it more difficult to find the truth. It means that, you know, somebody is determining the truth with the, the power of government through mandates, which we're seeing, unfortunately, happening in Europe, that a lot of countries right. decide that the right. government itself could now determine what is real and what is fake. And yes. I think that's something that in America, we're kind of fortunate that we're protected by things like the First Amendment, that we right. have a culture of right. free speech. Uh, I think that's been a very important part of our legacy here. But of course, these ideas are bubbling up across the pond, you know, they could land here too. So definitely a, a huge danger that we have to think about in the future when we talk about this issue. Right. Uh, but thank you very much to both of you for coming here and talking about this and, and bringing your perspective. Do appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. So I think part of this whole debate over fake news requires maybe a little bit more depth, a little bit more history and the role of fake news and media in American history. And I think, Fred, both of us have written a lot about this topic over the years. I think this idea that fake news is a new phenomenon is, well, that is fake news. Uh, it certainly has been a big part of American history uh, and, and world history since the very beginning. So, and you, you've certainly written a lot about that. I think the thing that comes up into my mind is uh, that, that election, that 1800 election between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, where uh, the media was a little overheated, wouldn't you say, Fred? Uh, yeah, uh- <laughs> plenty, plenty overheated. Uh, there was uh, some of the, the pro Jefferson press actually came up with this uh, fairly huge conspiracy theory about uh, President Adams uh, wanting to reunite uh, the uh, United States with England and uh, make make it a British colony again. And uh, the the convoluted 
conspiracy theory was that being reported in some of the papers this time was that Adam's sons would marry the daughter of King George. The it got it got even more elaborate, and more nefarious uh, <laughs> than that. But uh, the, uh, apparently, uh, also in the theory that George Washington came in to stop it from happening. But if you reelect John Adams again. This might happen, so you better be careful. Uh, and and I mean, it sounds bizarre today, but you know, back in that time, it's we weren't that far removed from having been a colony of Britain. So yeah, it it makes sense why people might have believed it, might have been alarmed by it. That that's sometimes the uh, the key in, in a lot of fake news stories. It has to have be in the realm of plausibility to the listener. It has to be just seemingly true enough. Uh, you know, I think and, we've seen a lot about this recent you know Fire and Fury book where there's a lot. Of people out there saying, well, maybe it's not quite true, but it's accurate. So <laughs> it's just, yeah, it seems plausible enough. I, I, I think that might be the problem with some of these um, Pizzagate and some of the, uh, the fake news in the lead up to 2016. It was just so unplausible that. How could anyone really believe that it impacted or swayed the election in some way? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's that's. I mean, I think that goes back for for a long time. There's yeah. a, a recent uh, study that was highlighted in the New York Times about essentially studying the the spread of fake news and showing that while a lot of fake news spreads very widely, it it doesn't go very deep. Essentially, mm-hmm. that people don't change their voting behavior because of a a fake news story that's been spread around today. The internet back in the nineteen 19- or 18th centuries, you know, we had other forms of communication, newspapers and things like that, where you can disseminate something that's completely wrong very rather quickly. I think this idea that because we are now in the internet era, that it's only now that crazy things spread quickly, I think it's just wrong. I mean, we've been had transformations in how media functions. I mean, the American Revolution itself, I mean, you had the printing press come to, to prominence where the average person can get access to information the way that they never could before. And certainly, you know, people, members of the press knew very quickly that they could reach these audiences and many of them weren't exactly honest or, you know, were a little, uh, little over the top in their opinion. Opinions and they and they use this certainly in that 1800 election where there's some fantastic stories about some of the comments that were made about both candidates Adams and Jefferson. I know Jefferson uh, employed somebody when he was uh, in the State Department at one point, Philip Freneau, who was you know considered a translator uh, of French and even though he didn't know the language, but he was used as a journalist to essentially write hit job pieces on their <laughs> opponent Federalists. So you know obviously for, for a long time even you know the greats in our history. History, the fake news surrounded them as well, and they had to deal with this. And uh, in the elections in the 19th century, there were some really, really brutal ones where the, the absolutely crazy stories. I think, you know, we were talking earlier, Fred, about uh, the 1828 election between Andrew Jackson and John Quincy Adams, which was one of the nastiest in American history. This was actually a repeat of the, the 1824 election, which Jeff, or excuse me, Jackson and Adams had competed with other candidates, and it ended up going to John Quincy Adams, who uh, who won the election. But this one really got nasty, Fred. This one, uh, there were some really crazy stories out there. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You had the Jacksonian press, and uh, also as as we talked about the first Russia collusion uh, <laughs> issues that came up in the press that were and largely unfounded. If you want to talk about that a little bit, yeah. That, I mean, there, there's this wild story that was cooked up by the the Jacksonian press that John Quincy Adams, when he was at the State Department, procured essentially a prostitute for the Russian czar. 
And this story got the essentially a procured a young American girl as a, as a prostitute uh, for the czar. Now this story was, I mean, it was completely bunk. But for a lot of people, it's this seemed uh, this seemed right. You know, John Quincy Adams seemed like an untrustworthy character, and this this story got a lot of play uh, at the time. I mean, it may seem completely absurd, but again, you can see how these stories, especially those who are already predisposed to not like a particular candidate, how they can sp- spread very quickly, and and certainly. Uh, um, you know, certainly the Adams press tried to highlight some of the nasty things about Jackson well and, and tried to try to appeal to their side of the aisle and say, well, that Jackson is a, a, a scuzzy character that we can't trust. And certainly there were a lot of stories that were put out there about Jackson's wife in particular that mm. horrified both of them and uh, caused a, a big stir at the time. Uh, you certainly wrote about this in your book, uh, Fred, which uh, which was uh, which was great. The Tainted by Suspicion, mm-hmm. which uh, you can get on Amazon, I'm sure. And right. <laughs> yes. so, thanks for the plug. Oh, of course. <laughs> Uh, and and certainly, uh, what's interesting about this one is that Andrew Jackson's wife was so upset by these these rumors right. and things like that that she actually died at the very end of this campaign. Which Andrew Jackson, not exactly yeah. known to be the most forgiving individual, never forgave, uh, right. never forgave his his uh, political opponents. So, you know, this this idea that fake news is a is a new phenomenon. It's just uh, it's it's not really accurate. Um, it it's been around for a long time and. You know, especially early in American history, the media was very decentralized. It was decentralized in the beginning. A lot of it was quite partisan. I think this idea mm-hmm. that the media is just, well, they're all just perfectly objective arbiters of the truth, well, that was recognized as being not true in the 19th century, especially because there were political, uh, essentially, newspapers that were peddling a certain line about things, and they were saying something to their, uh, the people would pick these up, and some of them were owned by the politicians themselves. Uh that right. changed, yeah. of course, That's... a little bit in the 20th century. Things like the Associated Press and things like this started to crop up. Right. But, but partisanship I... has always existed, right, Fred? Yeah, and I, I think the uh, the best truth detector against fake news, or for that matter, just biased news, is more free speech, more free press, uh, rather than any kind of commission that's being set up uh, in these European countries. Well, I, th- I think that's a great point, Fred. And I think kind of our, our, our final point on the show is, you know, what ultimately, what did the founders think about this issue? You know, they, they, these very deep thinkers who create our institutions and kind of create American culture that followed from this. And I think the founders were no fools. They understood the issue of both the idea of uh, fake news and, and fraudulent stories, and also the idea that newspapers created the American Revolution. It was peddlers like like us, you know, Samuel Adams and, and men like that, and Thomas Paine, who were promoters of American ideas. But uh, I think this idea of fake news was something that the founders were very aware of. I think there were some very interesting debates that took place in the Continental Congress, um, at the Constitutional Convention, excuse me. I think there was one story that, in particular, I thought was funny by Elbridge Jerry, who was uh, from Massachusetts. He was a representative, and he was really angry about all that he thought was fake news in his district. He actually said, The people do not lack virtue, but are the dupes of pretended patriots. In Massachusetts, it had been fully confirmed by experience that they are daily misled into the most baneful measures and opinions by the false reports circulated by designing men in which no one on the spot can refute. So, so of course, you know, this is this, as many other founders realized, yes, there were a lot of fake stories out there. There were a lot of uh, unseemly journalists and low-level characters who were trying to spread stuff. But Jefferson, 
uh, Thomas Jefferson kind of had a, a little bit of a rebuttal, you could say, to this, and saying essentially that who are we to censor what is what is real, what is fake? And um, Jefferson said that we needed reason and truth. Uh, which comes with a freedom of the press, uh, that there's simply no other way to get to this truth. He said, I am for the freedom of the press and against all violations of the Constitution to silence by force and not by reason the complaints or criticisms, just or unjust, of our citizens against the conduct of their agents. It is so difficult to draw a clear line of separation between the abuse and the wholesome use of the press that as yet we have found it better to trust the public judgment rather than the magistrate with the discrimination between truth and falsehood. And hitherto the public judgment has performed that office with wonderful correctness. I think that goes right to what you're saying, Fred, in that, you know, I think this idea that we can establish a, a, some kind of government commission that could tell us what is true or fake is not the way to go in this, is, is actually more dangerous uh, to finding the truth than even the fake news itself. Jeff Flake and, and some others uh, sort of almost go to a point of hysteria over these fake news awards uh, last week. Um, I mean that that's nothing compared to what we <laughs> we could potentially happen with a government board. Um, I, and and that that said, I mean not to dismiss entirely. Uh, uh, President Trump has talked about uh, making libel laws tougher, even though libel laws are mostly at the state level. He's talked about licensing FCC licensing of networks, FCC actually licensed stations, so that could happen. So Trump has talked about some things, but there are things that he couldn't really do. <laughs> So I, there's not that much of a threat. Yeah, and, and you know certainly I, I would say you know I realize people talk about the threat of Trump and they you know they talk about his angry twe- tweets and things like this, but you know you do have to look at what's going on in Europe and other countries where they are trying to create these commissions that would censor what is truth and what is false, and in some ways in that done in the name of democracy is a threat to democracy. It's a threat to the individual rights of free speech. Now, in America, we are very fortunate to have the First Amendment, which gives us uh, pretty broad protections of our of our individual rights. We don't see that in places like like necessarily like France or Canada or Germany or places like that. So we are very fortunate. I, I think it was very interesting to me that Alexis de Tocqueville, the, the Frenchman, the, the famed observer of American life in the 19th century, you know, he talked about uh, how the liberty of the press in America was such an, an important thing and so vital. And he warned uh, of this idea that we can create some kind of tribunal or commission that would discern truth from falsehood. And he said, I, I think very instructively, it's a, it's a kind of rebuke to the modern-day peddlers of creating these commissions. He said, whoever should be able to create and maintain a tribunal of this kind would waste his time in prosecuting the liberty of the press. For he would be the absolute master of the whole community and would be as free to rid himself of the authors as of their writings. So ultimately, if you create these boards and these commissions, you flirt with tyranny. You flirt with eliminating the truth itself, which... You know, I think you know that the media and the journalism should be about, which is ultimately we want to come to the truth. No single person is the bearer of all truth or knows all the answers. And certainly, I don't think we would trust the government to hold those things correctly. Certainly not from the vantage point of myself. You know, if all these things that we've seen the media get wrong over the years, uh, are we going to trust those things to some kind of government board, a far off bureaucracy that is the bearer of all wisdom? And right, and 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 I would say most of these fake news stories uh, we did cite, most were uh, smoked out by other media. 
organization. So that, that they were not smoked out by a government board. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a big part of this is the the decentralization, which has always been there in the American press. I think it's actually uh, be coming forth rapidly because of new media and things like that. In some ways. That allows us to keep tabs on the other media organizations. So if somebody makes a mistake, somebody else, some interested party somewhere else says, no, that's wrong. And they put out an, a counter narrative, a different story. They report on different things. So that's always been the best check on, a, on the fake press uh, is a free press and the ability to try to find uh, journalists who find the true facts uh, behind things, as uh, somebody once said. Um, so th- thanks, thanks so much, Fred, for, for joining me on the right side of history to talk about what is a very important topic. Um, all of the Heritage Foundation's podcasts are now featured on the audio Ra- Ricochet Audio Network. If you're coming to us from Ricochet, welcome. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and leave us some feedback. If you'd like to listen to past and future broadcasts, you can also check us out on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or the Daily Signal website. Also, take a look at the Daily Signal's Facebook page for when we air our next program. If you're interested in our work, check out my Twitter handle, at Jarrett Stepman, and Fred's Twitter handle, at WH. Thanks again for listening. You've been listening to The Right Side of History, executive produced by Jarrett Stepman and Fred Lucas. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org.